1: elevated
2: if you will place your left hand on the bible and raise your right hand and please repeat after me i do solemnly swear we the jury in the event titled action find the defendant guilty of the crime
0: it makes no sense it doesn't fit if it doesn't fit you must acquit we all
2: took the same oath of office we are all bound by that common commitment to support and defend the Constitution, to bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and to faithfully discharge the duties of our office. Do you
3: solemnly swear or affirm that
2: the testimony
3: you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? From Tenderfoot TV and
4: iHeartRadio, this is Sworn. I'm your host, Philip Holloway.
2: Usually when I represented somebody that I believe was fully innocent, they were normally found not guilty. But the very last trial I had were three defendants who were charged with drug trafficking. And one of them I knew was innocent. It wasn't my client. My client, without telling me he was guilty or not guilty, he told me that the other guys was innocent and that he felt terrible about it. He had just asked him to go to lunch, and they stopped by the drug house on the way to lunch. So then the third guy's lawyer, he said, you know, you know that defendant number two is innocent, don't you? His client had told him, my client had told me, two family members who were closer to defendants one and three told me that two was innocent. And plus, having heard everything that happened, there's not a doubt in my mind the guy was innocent. But as bad luck would have it, all three were convicted. And due to mandatory minimum sentencing, they all got 25 years. And so at the sentencing, the judge said, are y'all ready for sentencing? I said, yeah, but my client wants to be sentenced first. The only thing my client said was that so-and-so was innocent. He didn't ask for a lenient senate my client didn't ask for anything for himself he just spoke on behalf of defendant number two but you know the jury had just found him guilty so they all three got 25 years
4: that was ray Geary, a retired judge and defense attorney Ray helped inspire me to enter private practice nearly two decades ago and taught me a great many things that I now know about running a law practice. That story about Ray's last case features heavily the use of mandatory minimum sentencing, the topic of this episode. A mandatory minimum sentence is an amount of prison time that someone is required by law to serve for a particular crime. These laws are enacted by legislatures, and they make the legislatures rather than judges responsible for sentencing in a given case. There is a lot of debate about mandatory minimum prison sentencing in the United States right now, and there is also a push for legislative reform that we see taking place around the U.S. involving mandatory minimum sentencing. The first person we spoke to about this was Kevin Ring.
3: My name's Kevin Ring and I currently serve as president of FAM, formerly Families Against Mandatory Minimums. FAM is a national criminal justice reform organization that's been around since 1991, dedicated to the idea, not controversial we think, that the punishment should fit the crime. That people should be sentenced as individuals for whatever crimes they commit and that judges should have the authority to fashion sentences that fit each crime. Usually Congress or a state legislature will say for a certain crime, anybody who violates it can get up to five years or up to 10 years in prison. A mandatory minimum will say, this person gets up to 10 years, but no less than five years. So they set a floor uh, under which a judge can't go, even if they think the facts and circumstances of a case warrant it. In the federal system, this is usually done with drugs. If you traffic five grams of methamphetamine, you get a five-year mandatory minimum. That means it doesn't matter if you were the kingpin, the low guy in the totem pole, the five-gram trigger requires a five-year mandatory minimum prison sentence. So it's different in other sentences that don't carry these mandatory penalties in that a judge loses discretion. And once you're convicted of a crime, the punishment is automatic. I was a Capitol Hill staffer In the early 90s, I was just like everybody else, 20-something-year-old who knew nothing but thought I knew everything. I was a Republican, conservative, and my ideology matched that of the leaders at the time. Crime is out of control, and the way to solve it is to throw the book at people. There weren't a lot of studies about mandatory minimums at the time because they had just come back into vogue in the mid-80s. So we knew the prison population was rising, but crime was falling. And so that did not dissuade us from thinking that this was a good answer. It was my turn to write a bill dealing with methamphetamine, which was now becoming a very aggressive drug across the country. I said, well, here's the answer then. We'll just make the penalties for methamphetamine the same as they were for crack. We didn't have any hearings. We didn't bring anybody in and say, well, what's gonna be the real world impact of this? What's it gonna do to our incarceration rate? If we spend more on prisons for even low level offenders, are we gonna have fewer police and prosecutors? Is this the best use of our anti-crime resources? There was no study involved at all. We just knew it would be politically popular to say, Meth is dangerous and scary, so let's just ratchet up the penalties. I was part of that process. I helped draft that bill. It passed through Congress, and I think it did a lot of damage. It tied judges' hands now in a new area with methamphetamine, just as it was in all these other drugs. In some ways, I've switched sides, but I can't even say that my position before was well-informed. I was just somebody who believed the tough-on-crime line, that if there's a problem, the way to get rid of it is to punish the heck out of it. Mandatory sentences have been around since the beginning of the country. It tends to track whatever the crime de jour was. The first ones were like piracy. When Robert F. Kennedy is murdered after the California primary, the next day they passed one about guns. A couple things happened. There were real responses to crime. Sometimes it was a moral panic. Sometimes it was a legitimate fear that crime was out of control and they felt obligated to do something to look like they were being responsive. There was a period in the 70s where lawmakers lost faith in judges. They saw too many judges giving people what they thought were slaps on the wrist for serious offenses and they thought they couldn't be trusted anymore. Legislators started taking that power away and then they, they thought, it was politically popular to do so. What they wanna be able to do is run for office and say, not only do I care about public safety and I wanna crack down on drug dealers or child pornographers or DUIs, whatever it is, I can show my commitment by saying, I think everybody who commits that crime should get this stiff punishment. The problem is they always write the penalty for sort of the worst case scenario And don't contemplate the fact that there's going to be some facts and circumstances that might meet the technical definition of that crime, but don't warrant that stiff punishment. I think it arose, like all things, out of good faith, not malice. I think people were well-intentioned in believing that we needed to get serious about crime. It just turned out to be a very destructive and ineffective tool.
4: As Kevin is someone involved in the legislative side of the legal system, I asked him who he sees as the biggest advocates for mandatory minimum prison sentences?
3: Usually, the most aggressive advocates for mandatory minimums are prosecutors and their prosecutors, associations, and unions that tend to lobby legislatures and are very powerful. It gives them enormous leverage. It makes their job easier when they can go into a plea negotiation and say, if you don't plead guilty and give me everything I want, I'm gonna make sure you get 15 or 20 years in prison. If a prosecutor went to a defendant and said, I want you to not only plead guilty, but testify in exactly the way I want or I'll break your arm, no one would have a problem seeing the ethical dilemma raised by that. But when a prosecutor says, do what I want or I'm gonna put you in prison for 20 years, which is much more severe than breaking someone's arm, we treat that as a normal part of the process.
4: So this negotiating technique by prosecutors, that one where they tell people that if they don't plead out, that they'll increase the charge to something with a mandatory minimum. Well, that is what we call the trial tax. This is one of the hidden costs associated with going to trial. We'll cover this more in detail later in this episode.
3: Prosecutors say that these are helpful because it allows them to coerce people into giving up higher ups. The problem is they're usually used against the higher ups in a way to go down. The higher up will come in because they have all the information and they can say, get me out from under this mandatory minimum, I'll give up everybody below me. And it's the poor sucker on the bottom who has no information to give up, who gets stuck with the mandatory minimum. A defendant has to think, do I really wanna risk a trial? Because if I do and I'm found guilty and there's a mandatory minimum attached, no matter what the judge thinks, he or she will have no discretion to fashion a sentence that fits me. They'll have to go with that mandatory sentence. But we want judges to have control over punishment again so that it can be tailored to, you know, what really happened and not just some arbitrary standard that was set by politicians who know nothing about this defendant or this crime, but who wrote the mandatory minimum maybe 10, 20 years ago and couldn't have foreseen this particular instance.
4: As Kevin mentioned, the most vocal advocates in favor of mandatory minimum sentences are prosecutors. As a former prosecutor myself, I have seen that these laws can do more harm than good, but I wanted to see if there were benefits to these laws that I might be overlooking. So I talked with my friend and colleague, Assistant District Attorney Jesse Evans, to see what he thought about them as a prosecutor and how he uses them when he is charging defendants.
5: So the debate about mandatory minimums is not a new one. It's been going on for a long, long time within the criminal justice system. On the positive side of things, particularly when you have a very serious offense, we want to make sure that that's dealt with appropriately. We don't want to get to a situation where, say, a person doesn't accept responsibility for what they did, they insist on having a trial, and suddenly they're able to get a slap on the wrist for their armed robbery or serious violent felony or even drug trafficking or something like that. That's kind of the thought behind why mandatory minimums are good. It not only gives some certainty to us within the criminal justice system of what we know the outcome is going to be. It also, quite frankly, gives us some leverage, for lack of a better term, to be able to talk to a criminal defendant through his attorney from the prosecutor's perspective and say, look, we need to talk about whether we can negotiate this case, because if not, we know what the consequences are going to be. This is what you're going to be facing based on the mandatory sentencing. That's the one side of the coin. The other side of the coin, I think, is a correct side that mandatory minimums are not always good. We within the criminal justice system might be surprised to hear this, especially coming from a seasoned prosecutor, are not always in favor of them. There are often times where a mandatory minimum sentence actually frustrates our ability to get cases resolved rather than fosters our ability to get cases resolved. Those consequences that are mandated by this mandatory minimum are sort of inflicted on the case, for lack of a better term. And because of that, we're not able to get to a point where we can resolve it. The push, the modern day move within the criminal justice system, which I feel is actually a very good one, is the idea that we're going to give more discretion to the stakeholders, to the court, to the prosecutors, to the defense attorneys, and ultimately to victims of crimes as well, because now everybody gets a say in it. I've heard that said before, that the prosecutors control what the charges are. I'll step back from that a little bit and say this, the facts really dictate what the charges are gonna be. And ultimately, if I bring a case to court where the facts don't bear out, for example, an armed robbery versus a a robbery, the state's gonna get dinged on that because we have missed an element of proof that factually is required before we can bring those charges. That said, I understand why it is that judges might express some frustration about their hands being tied when they have mandatory minimums. And I think that's why there's been a real push. That's certainly been the case in Georgia to allow for a downward departure or downward deviation under some circumstances. Say you have the armed robber who's on a spree, goes in, guns ablazing into a bank. That's a very serious offense. 10 year mandatory minimum may not be enough for that guy. Now, say you have that scenario where you have a person that walks in and is using their coat and their finger to act like they have a gun and they take a bag of chips because the guy's homeless. That's an armed robbery, too. Both of them are facing the same mandatory minimum, but I think we would all agree that those are two different factual scenarios. The change in the law would basically allow us now to say when this prosecutor, the defense, with the approval of the judge says, we're going to let him plead an armed robbery, but we want to go less than that 10 years, there's a mechanism to be able to do so, and that's not a bad thing. Otherwise, what we had historically been forced to do is to come up with sort of a legal fiction. Well, we know it's an armed robbery, Mr. Guy, who comes in using your finger as a gun. But at the same time, because we want it apart from the mandatory minimum, we're going to call it something that it's not like an aggravated assault or in a robbery or something like that. The problem with that is when you get a conviction of a different offense, it could very well impact recidivist punishment down the road if the person commits another crime because now they don't fall under that statute neatly where we can insist on the higher punishment. There's another important factor that maybe we haven't yet talked about, which is a component of and that's the victim and victims' rights. I understand why from a legislative perspective, when that victim tells the police officer hey, this guy put a gun in my face and took something from me, that armed robbery needs to be dealt with extremely seriously. It's certainly understandable from my perspective as to why a legislature might want to say, there needs to be a mandatory minimum when that happens, because if it's your loved one, your wife, your kid that suffered and been victimized from that crime, starting with a proposition that we're going to treat that more seriously than where somebody just merely punched a battery, makes sense to me.
6: Go to lifelock.com slash iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at lifelock.com slash iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here.
7: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
1: Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Annabe, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out. Where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices.
4: After hearing from Jesse and Kevin, I also wanted to get a judge's perspective on mandatory minimum sentences and how these laws may affect the judge's work when it comes to sentencing, as well as the overseeing of criminal trials. We heard from Federal District Judge Jed Rakoff back in Episode 1 regarding eyewitness testimony. But Judge Rakoff is perhaps best known for his work studying and speaking out about mandatory minimum sentencing.
8: I am a deep believer that a just sentence requires a judge to get deeply into the facts, the facts of the crime, the facts of the criminal, the facts of the victims, and to do the very difficult and often agonizing but careful job of figuring out what sentence makes sense. Mandatory minimums, of course, prevent you from doing that whatsoever. But even the sentencing guidelines, which in the federal system are no longer mandatory, they emphasize certain factors hugely in excess of other factors. I would go back to the system that persisted in this nation for nearly 200 years, which was we leave it to the good sense of the judge, and we encourage our judges to do a lot of work before they impose sentence.
3: People will say to me, well, why do you trust judges? And I say, I don't trust anyone. I would rather have a good system, though. And I think the best system is one of checks and balances. The legislature gives wide discretion for what charges you can bring and what the punishments can be. The prosecutor brings the charges after looking at the facts of a case. The judge then issues a sentence that makes sense. And then that sentence can be appealed if it's too severe or too lenient. And an appeals court can get a whack at it, but it's like an editing process. The more eyes that look at it, the more likely you are to get things right. This is Kevin Ring. I've been to prison myself. I was a federal lobbyist, and our firm came under scrutiny. I cooperated for two years. The government ultimately wanted me to say things that I thought were untruthful and to incriminate others in a way that I thought was untruthful. So we just had a disagreement about it. And when they tried to get me to plead guilty and cooperate, they sat me down for what's called a reverse proffer. Usually a proffer is when a defendant comes in and says, here's everything I know, is that useful to you? A reverse proffer is when the government says, here's everything we have against you. Think about that carefully before you make your plea decision. Well, with me, they brought me in and they said, after two years of cooperating and other evidence gathering, here's what we have against you if you plead and cooperate, we'll charge you with these things. And if you don't and you go to trial, we'll charge you with all of these different crimes." I just couldn't say what they wanted me to say. I would have been lying on the stand against people that I cared about. But what made it somewhat easier was the idea that, unlike maybe some poor kid who's on the street corner and being threatened with a 20-year mandatory minimum sentence, I knew that if I had my day in court, that if a judge heard all the facts and circumstances, he or she would conclude, as my judge did at the end of two trials, that I was not who the prosecutor said I was. I didn't know how it was gonna end. I was very nervous, very worried, because I had two young daughters. If I had been facing a mandatory minimum, it would have made the decision 100 times tougher. I'd like to think that I would have kept my integrity and pled according to the truth, but it would have been much harder. Prison is, it's a necessary evil, but people forget how evil it is. And so even though I was in you know, a low security facility, it was awful. The punishment is being removed from society. I mean, I was away from two young daughters for a year and a half. I had never slept away from them for more than two nights. Our sentences have gotten so long that when we hear somebody say, oh, we got five years, that's not bad. Five years. Think about how much happens in five years. People graduate, people get married. We've lost track of how long that is. That should be a last resort. We have to have prison for some people who are harming people and who are an ongoing harm. But as a group that values families and children and communities, we just have to get back to the idea that it should be a last resort, not a first option. The best evidence suggests that the thing that is most likely to deter somebody from committing another crime or committing a crime at all is the risk of getting caught. They're not dissuaded by the severity of the punishment. So these long sentences don't deter people. They don't need the extra 10 years. That's not doing society any benefit. Some people will say, well, okay, but it's not hurting if they're just locked up. They're at least not committing any crimes. The problem with that is all of our budgets are finite. So if we're locking somebody up for 10 years when five would be enough, that cost of the extra five years, which may be 30000 a year for five years, is probably the cost of another policeman on the street who could be preventing crimes.
4: Personally, with respect to how I have seen these laws used, I think mandatory minimum sentencing should be done away with, quite frankly. Even in the cases where judges would prefer not to send someone to prison or to give them perhaps a shorter prison sentences, the judges' hands are tied and they have no choice. I think the far better system is the one where judges are allowed to do what they are elected or appointed to do, and that is to be judges. Judges can throw the book at someone if they really need it, and judges can also be lenient where it is appropriate. In other words, cookie-cutter justice just doesn't work. When it comes to something as complicated and high stakes as criminal justice, I just can't think of a good argument against specificity. Mandatory minimum prison sentences factor heavily in why people will plead guilty to things that they did not do. They simply can't afford the risk of losing a trial where they would be faced with a mandatory minimum prison sentence, and oftentimes they will opt to plead guilty to a lesser charge even if they maintain their innocence just to avoid mandatory minimum sentencing. We've talked a lot this season about how every single person in the justice system has an absolute constitutional right to a fair trial. But, being entitled to something is one thing, actually getting it is another. To put it another way, having a right to a fair trial does not mean that everyone actually gets a fair trial there is an enormous amount of risk associated with taking a criminal case to trial. Some of those risks are obvious, like the risk of extensive incarceration. And some of those risks, though, are hidden, such as the lifetime stigma associated with merely being charged with a crime. When I gamble, I never place a bet that I cannot afford to lose. The decision to go to trial or to take a plea deal is a lot like gambling. And because it is so risky, innocent people will sometimes plead guilty and take a deal rather than risking their lives by going to trial. One of the less obvious risks of trial is what we in the legal business call the trial tax. The trial tax refers to the extra jail time that sometimes gets added to a sentence merely because a person has exercised their constitutional right to a trial. There are many ways that this trial tax and other costs can sneak into a case once a person invokes their right to a trial. As a retired judge and defense attorney, my friend Ray Gary Jr. has an absolute treasure trove of all kinds of stories. Many of these are very entertaining stories, but some are downright frightening. Many of Ray's stories highlight the consequences of going to trial and the reasons that innocent people might plead guilty.
2: The main reason an innocent person would plead guilty is because if they go to trial and lose, they're going to get an extremely long sentence. There's some comfort into knowing what you're going to get before you get there. If you have a plea bargain, you know ahead of time what's going to happen when you go to court. If you go to trial, if you win, you made a great decision. If you go to trial and you lose, you made a terrible decision because you're going to get a lot more punishment. You know, some people say, "Well, I got wife and kids. I can't take a chance on going to prison. We'll lose our house." Sometimes people plead guilty just to avoid the risk. So if they offer you the right thing, like I had a lady charged with molesting her own grandson that was innocent. But when you allege child molestation against anybody, the police department and the prosecutors and the judges, they don't want to back off on something like that. So the best offer I had before trial was 10 years in prison and 10 years on probation. After the first witness testified, which was the child victim, on cross-examination, he admitted that he made the whole thing up because his mother didn't like her mother-in-law. And so the prosecutor asked for a recess to talk to me, and they browbeat me into pleading to a misdemeanor with no jail time. And to this day, I regret it. I should have, I shouldn't have let him browbeat me into uh, pleading guilty to anything. But, But you know, when you go from your best offer is 10 years in prison, followed by 10 years on probation, be a registered sex offender down to misdemeanor probation, that's a pretty far drop. Even though at that point it was so obvious that the client was innocent, the prosecutor still wanted to squeeze out a little bit now that I've had more time to think about it, that makes me hold to that prosecutor in lower esteem. If he thought the person was guilty, he shouldn't have backed off. If he thought they were innocent, he should have backed off all the way.
4: Because I've worked both sides of a courtroom, I know firsthand how motivated prosecutors and judges can be to keep their active caseloads as low as possible. For this reason, the system itself is built in a way that discourages trials and encourages guilty pleas. The system would come to a grinding halt but for the fact that the overwhelming majority of cases are resolved by some sort of negotiated plea deal. For example, prosecutors have the power to charge much more serious crimes when someone decides not to plead guilty, and that's a big piece of the risk defendants have to consider before deciding to take a case to trial. But the thing about the trial tax, it's not a local or even a state-level phenomenon. It's happening everywhere throughout the United States. This is defense attorney Michelle Teagle.
9: What I think happens every day in this country is that people are overcharged and that they plead And sort of, I hate to say split the baby, but they have to make a decision about whether they're willing to risk more or take the plea bargain. Because a trial is always a risk for a person and their freedom. And the more serious the charge, the more of a risk it is. Do I think innocent people plead guilty all the time? I think it happens. But I think what happens even more, they maybe have some responsibility for something but they are being overcharged. And I saw that at all levels in the criminal system. I don't know if you use this term in Georgia, but in Texas, they sometimes call it a shotgun charge. Basically, a prosecutor dumps everything but the kitchen sink, hoping that something will stick. That's an unfair way to do it, but it's a way that prosecutors do it who are more focused, I think, on winning than on doing justice because they walk away with a win in their, you know, quiver or whatever, instead of just getting the right result and serving the community. And that's a real, that's a real unfortunate thing. I think it's a real problem in nonviolent offenses. I think, I mean, just from a, an opinion perspective, we're overcharging people. But sometimes I think we're also using the ability that prosecutors have in a lot of states of enhancements different ways that they can make a crime more serious based on a person's priors or the amount of drugs or other factors, or in the federal system, what we call relevant conduct, which is what I would say in lay terms is all this other stuff that can make it a lot worse. Those factors, I think, can really result in a person going away for something that in essence they are innocent of because that's really not what they're guilty of or it's not not right for their case. Maybe they're not innocent of everything, are any of us.
7: (laughs) Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. feels just right don't miss it mark your calendars and be the first to see it march 20th at 7 p.m eastern only on iHeartRadio's youtube channel save the date at new-qx80.com 2025 qx80 coming this summer
1: tired of spills and stains on your sofa wash away your worries with Annabe. anabay the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply.
0: Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.
4: Michelle brings up a good point that we've addressed before, but I want to emphasize again. The stories we've heard about wrongful conviction have shown fully innocent men get picked up by the police and tossed around by the justice system. And still, none of them pled guilty. While I've seen and worked on cases where fully innocent people plead guilty because the risks are just too great, what happens more often, in my experience, is people who are guilty in some way get punished for additional crimes that they are not guilty of. Any given criminal incident can have a variety of different pieces that carry different charges. For example, The use of a weapon or someone's mental state during an incident can affect charges and punishment. In order to help secure a conviction, some prosecutors will charge a defendant with anything that might possibly fit. In that way, people may be guilty of some of the charges but innocent on others. Here's the story of a case where a judge hit one of Ray Gary's clients extremely hard with a trial tax. This case happened many years ago, and I think you might recognize the prosecutor.
2: I took on a client who was charged with armed robbery. My client and three other young men robbed a Petsmart, so they went out and they bought BB guns. But the BB guns looked real. You couldn't tell that they were not real guns. Two of the boys go in, and hide inside a doghouse. So after the door was locked and the store was closed, the two armed robbers come out of the doghouse and round everybody up and they go open the door and let the other two robbers in. The victims are scared to death. Some of the people in there recognized, you know, one of the perpetrators. So they called the police and said, so-and-so and three other guys just robbed us. So one guy pleads guilty right away. gets 20 to do 10, which was Phil Holloway's best offer. And really, that was a good offer because the minimum sentence for armed robbery was 20 to do 10, I think. So Phil had a pretty strong case, but my client, strangely, would not plead guilty. He was like one of these ostriches that stick their head in the sand, and I tried to explain I agree that it's too much. I agree that it's not fair, but you've got to choose between bad or worse. And if you go to trial, it's going to be a lot worse. But his mother had a vision from God that he was going to be acquitted. And so we started the trial. My client's convicted on four counts of armed robbery. My client ends up getting 40 years in prison without parole. And matter of fact, that was about 15 or 16 years ago, and so all the other three who took the deal, they're, they've been out for four or five years. My guy is still in. I hear from him every now and then, but really, there's nobody that can let him out unless the judge was to change her mind.
4: That case happened back when I was working at the district attorney's office as an assistant district attorney. While I was not involved with the sentencing in the case, it was up to me to determine what charges to bring, and as Ray said, I offered his client the legal mandatory minimum, 10 years in prison. I wanted to bring back Jesse Evans to once more get a current prosecutor's perspective. Jesse has told us in the past that the charges that he brings are always determined by the facts of the case as he believes them to be. That is exactly the way that it is supposed to work. But sometimes, some prosecutors have different motivations, particularly the motivation to get cases pled out and moved quickly. The trial tax can be a very powerful tool that some prosecutors use to make that happen.
5: The reason that we have plea negotiations, in large part, is because of the idea that we want to have some certainty. From all perspectives, from the victim's perspective, from the prosecutor's perspective, from the defendant's perspective, there's no guarantee when you insist on a trial of what those end results are going to be, except for maybe this. The net outcome is no longer in your hands. Once that jury is selected and once that trial starts, A lot of the consequences for what happens is no longer going to be in the criminal defendant's perspective. It's not going to be in the prosecution's perspective necessarily. It's going to be in the perspective of 12 jurors and ultimately the judge that's going to be responsible for sentencing thereafter. Fear of the unknown is an important factor for how we resolve cases within the criminal justice system. Fact of the matter is, just uh, to take Cobb County by example, we've got 10 Superior Court judges. Let's assume that each judge has got one trial week per month. Start doing the math there. They've got 200 cases on their trial calendar at any given point, 150, 200 cases. We cannot try all of those cases within a given year. If we don't have the ability to resolve those, the criminal justice system is going to fall apart. And we all recognize that from prosecutor's perspective, from defense attorney's perspective, and from judge's perspective. But understand this too. Look, the the vast majority of cases resolve and pleas because the person's caught and they did it and they know it. And really what we're talking about is, what's the best result? So say, for example, you have those hundreds, if not thousands of cases where the police have arrested somebody and have got heroin in their pocket. We are not gonna be trying cases of the person caught with heroin in their pocket where the defense is gonna be, these are not my pants, right? That doesn't make sense. The cases that tend to go to trial are the more serious ones. When you're charged with murder, the consequences are so great that the chances of being able to resolve that case are diminished because of the nature of the charges. I don't disagree that there are probably instances where people are willing to enter a plea, not because they believe they are in fact guilty of it, but because they believe the consequences are too great. I would say that those, in my opinion, are probably in the minority and not the majority. I've never been charged with the crimes that I can say, but I, I know I'm not going to be able to come to court and say that I'm guilty of something that I didn't do. I'm going to insist on on my trial.
2: A judge is really nothing but a government bureaucrat. We have this perception of what a judge is, and you know they're perched up on a high platform in the courtroom, and uh, they're wearing that robe. But if you really think about it, they're actually a government bureaucrat, just like the clerk of the court that sits in front of them. A government worker is always going to take the short way, so you know the clerk of the court deals out the cases like a card dealer dealing out cards. Every judge in the same circuit gets the same amount of cases assigned to him, And so you got to finish those cases and it don't look good if you have a big backlog and there's not enough time to trial the cases. One judge told me the most criminal jury trials he could have in a year is 13 because they plan their whole year out, and if something falls through, that takes you down to 12 to 10. I talked to that same judge a few years later, and he only had four criminal jury trials a few years later. So there's not enough time. So let's say I've got a client that's charged with uh, burglary. If we have a trial, I'm gonna take about four full days of the court's time if I plead guilty to a plea bargain, I'm gonna take about 15 minutes of the court time. Who wouldn't wanna go the 15 minute route as opposed to the four day? You know, everybody's motivated to try to do a plea bargain and that's why most cases are plea bargains and very few cases are trials. Now, the way they get you to do that you no, know, the word gets out that there's a lot more punishment. That reminds me of a, of a story about a judge wanting to make it short. And I had a client who, he wasn't innocent, necessarily. He was more in the gray area. We wanted a trial. So we got the phone call, be here. Tuesday afternoon at 1.30 to start the trial. So the judge was in his chambers, which was right next to where I was sitting. So I can hear the judge, and what I hear is him saying, play golf today? Yeah, yeah, I can make it, I'm, I'm, I'm 90% sure I can make it, yeah, plan on me being there. So I'm thinking, hey, if I go to trial, he's not gonna make that tee time, He's motivated. This is good. So the judge buzzes out to the administrative assistant, send both lawyers back here. And so we sit down and he says, can't you boys work this out? I said, well, I think so, yeah. And the prosecutor said, well, I don't know, I don't know. I'm under pressure from higher ups. The judge said, what are you looking for, Ray? I said, I'm looking for one year to serve, and you know, about five years on probation. I asked the prosecutor, what'd you offer him? He said, well, I offered him three years to serve and two years on probation. The judge said, can't you come down to, to one year? He said, I really just don't think I can. The judge looked at me and he said, why don't you get your client to plead guilty without having a plea bargain? which ordinarily would be playing Russian roulette. If your client doesn't like what the sentence is, I'll let you withdraw it and proceed with the trial, which was the same thing as him telling me, I'm going to give you exactly what you said you wanted. So I said, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll plead guilty with no deal on the table. So we plead guilty and that's exactly what happened. And the judge went to play golf. It's just a bunch of unique circumstances that resulted in, A, me not having to try the case, B, my client not risking going to prison longer. And it actually took the pressure off the DA, too, because it wasn't his fault. You know, he could go back and say, hey, I can't stop him from pleading guilty. And Judge didn't do what I wanted him to, so the DA was off the hook. The DA didn't have to try the case. I was happy. My client was happy. The judge was happy. This wasn't something the judge told me, this was just something I overheard.
4: Before we finish up this episode, I wanted to play for you one more point that defense attorney and friend of the show Ashley Merchant brought up. There's another consequence to mandatory minimum sentences that she sees in her work that might not be immediately apparent.
10: I do a lot of work with prison inmates. I mean, I think a lot of people don't think about this When you have a mandatory minimum where there's no parole and you take away hope from a prison inmate of getting out, you create a very, very scary prison system. The behavioral incentive for inmates is parole. If you sentence people to 25 years to life without parole, they are going to go into prison and commit more crimes because they're never gonna get out and they have no hope of ever getting out and they know they're never gonna get out. What are you gonna do to them? Give them more time? So I've had clients who told me that. They're like, if I'm never gonna get out, I'm gonna sell drugs in prison and send the money to my family. Because that's the only way I can make money for my family and I'm never getting out. I think you're seeing inmates that are willing to take chances on crimes because it can't get any worse for them. You know, it becomes the department of punishment, not the department of corrections. You're not trying to correct behavior if you're locking someone up and never letting them out because of a mandatory minimum.
4: There is so much more to cover on the risks associated with going to trial and the hidden costs also associated with going to trial, so we'll continue this topic next week. Plus, there's a legal tool we haven't yet discussed that allows people to take advantage of a plea deal without ever saying that they are guilty. One of the things we found out while making this show is that tool, which I use for a lot of my cases, is more controversial than I thought next time on
6: SWORN.
8: The blame, in part, is on all of us because this would not be occurring or not occurring in the extreme way that we're describing if there were more judges, more resources for criminal defense lawyers, especially for indigents, more in-depth inquiries, lower penalties, if you took the person in the street and showed them what you just described, I think most people would say, oh, my gosh, I never thought it worked like that. I mean, that's like what they used to do in Soviet Russia. That stuff. That's not justice. But they have no idea.
4: Sworn is a production of Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. Our lead producer is Christina Dana. Executive producers are Payne Lindsay and Donald Albright for Tenderfoot TV, Matt Frederick and Alex Williams for iHeartRadio, and myself, Philip Holloway. Additional production by Trevor Young, Mason Lindsay, Mike Rooney, Jamie Albright, and Hallie Beadall. Original music and sound design by Makeup and Vanity Set. Our theme song is Blood in the Water by Layup. Show art and design is by Trevor Eiler. Editing by Christina Dana. Mixing and mastering by Mike Rooney and Cooper Skinner. Special thanks to the team at iHeartRadio. From UTA, Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer. Ryan Nord and Matthew Papa from The Nord Group. Beck Media and Marketing and Station 16. I'd also like to extend a very personal and special thanks to all of our contributors and guests who have helped to make all of these episodes possible. You can find Sworn on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sworn Podcast. And follow me, your host, Philip Holloway, on Twitter at philhollowayesq. Our website is swornpodcast.com, and you can check out other Tenderfoot TV podcasts at www.tenderfoot.tv. If you have questions or comments, you can email us at sworn at tenderfoot.tv or leave us a voicemail at 404-410-0441. As always, thanks for listening. Do you know what a podcast is, Ray? Well,
2: my impression of it, although I've never heard one, is that it's like a radio show, but instead of getting it on the radio, you get it off the computer, (laughs) right? I mean, I'm from the old school, so, I've never actually heard a podcast. But now that I'm involved in one, I intend to, you know listen to one, especially your show if I can find it.
7: Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury.